So if you would take your Bibles, please, and open them to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read the passage now, but we will come to it uh, toward the end of the sermon. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse number 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which was pre- you have prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Tim Keller, in his recent book, Hidden Christmas, opens it this way. Christmas is the only Christian holiday that is also a major secular holiday, arguably our culture's biggest. The result is two different celebrations, each observed by millions of people at the same time. This may bring discomfort on both sides. Many Christians can't help but notice that more and more of the public festivities surrounding Christmas studiously avoid any references to the Christian origins. On the other hand, non-religious people can't help but find that the older meaning of Christmas keeps intruding uninvited, for instance, through the music of traditional Christmas carols. The result is that the truths of Christmas have been hidden. I don't know if you caught it, but in the first hymn we sang today, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, there's a line that says, God and sinners reconciled, and later on, born to give them second birth. Well, if you are not a Christian, what does this mean? And, and why is this, what does this have to do with Christmas? I would argue that among the reasons that the meaning of Christmas is hidden is that we, as Christians, oftentimes want to speak only of the joyous parts of Christmas, and indeed, it is a time of great joy. And we want people to share in that joy with us. The problem is in doing that, we fail to acknowledge or to remember the troubles of Christmas, if you wish, or the problems that people have with Christmas. For those who don't know me very well, and for those of you who do, um, it has been said of me, I've been accused of being able to turn a hymn into a dirge and a Christmas carol into a dirge. Um, In my defense... I would say that the joy of Christmas can only be fully appreciated in contrast to the background against which it comes. Um, The joy of having the Rolands back with us today is against the background of not seeing them for more than six months. And no offense to the rest of you, it's good to see you today, but it is not the same joy because I saw you last Sunday. Okay? (laughs) 
But with the Rollins, it's been more than six months, and there is great joy. In the same way, the joy of Christmas cannot be fully appreciated if we don't understand the darkness against which it is put. I want to look at several areas in which Christmas may, in fact, present problems or trouble for people, and that's why it's sort of conveniently shunted to the side. The first thing I want to talk about is light. In Isaiah 9, we read one of the great prophecies regarding the Messiah. We know, I think, the latter part of it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Well, this, these are verses 6 and 7. In verse number 2, near the beginning of the chapter, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. One of the indications for us that Christmas is around the corner is the appearance of lights. Uh, we find them on trees, Christmas trees, uh, candles in the windows, houses are covered with them. My nephew Jack used to call them jolly houses. You see a house covered with lights. And while we enjoy the lights, why lights are appropriate for Christmas, I think, has gone by most people. Lights are necessary where there is darkness. And the coming of Jesus is described as the appearance of a great light on those who are in darkness, walking in darkness, and those who live in the shadow of death. John tells us in the beginning of his gospel, through him, that is through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not that light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. See, the reason we need light is because, in fact, there is darkness. And the Bible speaks quite a bit about darkness. But what does it mean? What should we understand by Scripture when it speaks of darkness? I think there are at least two ways in which we are to understand it. First of all, it refers to evil. It means that the world is filled with evil and untold suffering. Think of violence and injustice, the abuse of power, homelessness, refugees who are fleeing oppression, Families that are ripped apart, grief upon grief. In that sense, I think we can understand that the world is filled with darkness. But secondly, it also refers to ignorance. It means that no one knows well enough how to cure the evil and suffering in the world. If you go back a chapter before the the one I've just read in Isaiah 9, at the end of chapter 8, you will find that people were searching for answers apart from God if you wish, apart from the light. Let me read to you some verses. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living, to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land, When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking up, they will curse their king and their God. 
Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and, and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. In a world that is marked by darkness, people seek answers, ignorantly, apart from God. They look to experts, so-called, or mystics, scholars, the state, technology, the market, and yet no matter what they consult, they are in darkness and they need light. But they believe that they have light, when in fact they remain in darkness. Keller mentions an ad, in a, uh, I think in the New York Times, that had the following copy. The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. But can we? Can we? Uh, Vaclav Havel, the first president of the Czech Republic, concluded that neither technology nor the state nor the market alone could save us from nuclear conflict, ethnic violence, and environmental problems. He stated, pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy enough. A turning to and seeking of God is needed. The human race constantly forgets that he is not God. That is, we forget that we are not God. The text in Isaiah tells us that a light has dawned. The language of light is that of the sun. It is the sun that we see at dawn. Isaiah uses it as a symbol for the coming of the Messiah. And what we see in sunlight is what we see in the Messiah. Sunlight brings life. It brings truth. We can see what is real. And there is great beauty as well probably don't need to deal with this at length because we know the wonders of the sun. What we should see is that it is a symbol. It represents the coming of Jesus into the world. That just as the sun makes life possible and just as the sun makes it possible to see what is true and just as the sun is beautiful, one might even say dazzling, so this is what we find in the coming of Jesus into the world. And this is what we remember at Christmas. And that's why there are lights. But people have lights and have forgotten or have never been told that this is why lights are appropriate at this time of year. John wrote in his first epistle, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Jesus is the light of the world, and the lights of Christmas are to remind us of this. The second problem or trouble, I think, that arises when we think of Christmas is that of the miraculous, the miracle, the virgin birth. It is not uncommon to hear of a Christmas miracle. Uh, Try Googling it. I did. And you will come up with a number of links, uh, at least as far as I got. None of them speak of Jesus. Um, There are different movies. They they send you to IMDb. Uh, The Reader's Digest has uh, five true old-fashioned Christmas miracles that will restore your hope in the holidays. Um, There's another story, a Christmas miracle, that begins... Uh, I'm sorry, that tells us that giving is important and this little girl went through this experience and from that she learned the wonder of Christmas. 
it was a Christmas miracle. The reality of the miracle of the birth of Jesus, being born of a virgin, is something that is seen as impossible, something that can't happen. But we have all these other miracles that could happen, and that's what Christmas is about. Matthew and Luke both tell us about the birth of Jesus. In Luke's account, it is Gabriel who speaks to Mary, and he tells her, you will be with child and will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born of you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Many people, I think, are embarrassed by speaking of the virgin birth because that just seems like something that is impossible. And we're told nothing is impossible with God. And it seems that in place of the miracle of the birth of Jesus, we have all these other miraculous stories, these stories of miracles that happen at Christmas. So Christmas and miracles still go together, just not the big miracle that is the reason for Christmas itself. Larry King once was asked who he would like to interview the most from across human history. Who was the one person he would want to talk to? And he said, amazingly, Jesus. Uh, And he was asked, what would you ask Jesus? I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born, because the answer to that question would define history. I think perhaps more than he knows, Mr. King has, in fact, correctly identified a central truth. It is the central truth of the Christian faith. If Jesus is born of a virgin, then his claims are true. And if we reject his message, then in fact we are being quite foolish. But if he was not born of a virgin, then the gospel is built on a lie. Paul mentions in Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. Some people have complained that this was a wonderful opportunity for Paul to mention the virgin birth. He doesn't mention that. He doesn't even mention Mary by name. And people said, "Eh, so maybe Matthew and Luke sort of colluded together to come up with this this story uh, of the virgin birth. No. What Paul wants us to see that is as miraculous as the virgin birth is that God came in the flesh. Like the rest of us, the rest of the human race, he was born of a woman. In the Old Testament, we have appearances of the Lord Jesus, uh, which are called Christophanies or Theophanies. And the book of Genesis has a number of them in which he appears, but then he's gone. Uh, One is when uh, he appeared to Abraham with two angels and told them of the the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was the man who wrestled with Jacob at night. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. But these are temporary appearances. When it was the right time, Paul tells us, Jesus came into the world the same way that each one of us has come into the world. This is the miracle, this is the miracle of Christmas. This is what we are to remember. But because it's so troubling and problematic for a lot of people, it is simply set aside. 
The third problem I think that comes up at Christmas is that of the Savior. Joseph was told by the angel that he and Mary were to name the child to be born Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. The angels told the shepherds, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This is wonderful news, except for one thing. If there is a Savior, it means that there are those who need to be saved, who are in need of a Savior. You see, if you have a solution, it means that there is a problem. If you have a Savior, it means you have people who are lost, who indeed need to be saved. This ties in with what we started with when we talked about the light. We need light because, in fact, there is darkness. The darkness is demonstrated by King Herod in the story that is told in Matthew 2. The Magi have been following a star, and they come to Herod. Uh, they want to know how to get to Bethlehem, uh, or they want to know to go, how to get to where the king is born. And the priests, the, the experts in the law tell Herod, the prophecies say that he is born in Bethlehem. Herod and his advisors had the benefit of scripture. They live a mere six miles from Bethlehem, and yet they do not go. Uh, The Magi do go. How could Herod be so blind? He's in darkness. And then the Magi do not return. Herod is furious, and so he, uh, he orders the slaughter of all boys in Bethlehem, ages two years and under. And we ask, how could he be so cruel? Well, he is lost. He's in darkness and in need of a savior. One author put it so well that those who begin by hating the child will end up by hurting children. Paul tells us in Romans 1, in theological terms, what Matthew has demonstrated in historical and biographical terms. Paul says that since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Martin Luther said, this hereditary sin is so deep a corruption of nature that reason cannot understand it. It must be believed because of the revelation of scripture. The very recognition that we are sinners is an act of faith. Because if we're not sinners, then why do we need a savior? But since the savior has come, then we in fact are sinners. What we see in Herod is a person quite apart from the grace of God who wants to remain the center of his universe and who will do anything to remain so. Feigning interest when the Magi tell him of what they have seen, furious when they do not return, and massacring the boys of Bethlehem. Herod did not see the reality that a savior had been born. He was threatened by this birth. He thought, as many, if not most people, think today, he did not need a savior. I have mentioned this in the past, and some of you will remember, that the coming of Jesus into the world condemns our pride, the cause of so many problems. It is the condemnation of a belief in ourselves, our belief in humanity, our belief in the human race. We like to believe that we are capable of solving all our problems, 
and that we're simply in the process of development. Yes, there have been problems in the past, you have the Dark Ages, the medieval period, uh, but we're getting past that. Uh, we're no longer primitive, we're no longer pre-modern. But then when we hear of the birth of Jesus, we are reminded that we cannot redeem ourselves, we cannot save ourselves. We are lost in need of redemption. God sends a helpless baby through Mary to be born in Bethlehem. The coming of Jesus is also a condemnation in our belief in human wisdom. Paul tries to straighten out the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 because they feel like they are being unwise, that the world is wise and they, in fact, are being foolish. And he points out that it's quite the reverse. It is the world that is foolish because they are ignoring, they have rejected what God has said. The fourth and final problem that I want to discuss briefly is the sword, which we read about in our text today here in Luke chapter 2. The first part of this passage is known as the nunc dimittis, now now dismiss your servant in peace. It is a wonderful passage and yet troubling. It is wonderful in that Simeon was allowed to live long enough to see the Lord's Christ. And then we have his wonderful song, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. These verses have been included in music, in liturgies, in various chants. Um, But the next two verses have not. These are the troubling words of Christmas, if you wish. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And now we come to see the problems, the troubles of Christmas as seen in the lights of Christmas, the miracle of Christmas, the Savior born at Christmas. It is this baby who, in fact, is a polarizing figure. I mean, how can you be polarized by a baby? This is a wonderful child that has been born. But he is polarizing, and the gospel remains so today. Interestingly enough, people don't, in our time, don't seem to fear divine retribution. You know, may lightning strike me. You don't hear that very much anymore. The people don't seem to fear God. But they do seem to fear Christians who are seen as a threat to the social order, that our beliefs are dangerous, they're problematic, they're troubling, and they are intolerant. Now, the reality is we're human beings as Christians. We are flawed, one might even say deeply flawed, and we are often less than consistent with what we profess to believe. But we should not try to justify our bad behavior by complaining of persecution. But Simeon wasn't talking about that. He's talking about this baby being the cause of offense. And not only with unbelievers, but with believers as well. And this, I think, ties in with the person of Mary. In the Gospels, Mary is presented as a person to be admired whose example is to be followed. Her response to Gabriel 
when Gabriel tells her that she who is a virgin is suddenly going to be pregnant. She's not married, she's betrothed, but what are people going to say? She will be the cause of great scandal. But she answers, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. It's a wonderful example. And yet there are times when Mary didn't get it right. In Mark chapter 3, she and her sons went to take Jesus home. When the family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. There was a point in her life when Mary thought that Jesus had lost his mind as he carried on his ministry. What Simeon tells her, we should hear as well. If you love Jesus and have him in your life, a sword will pass through your heart as well. There will be inner conflict. There will be confusion, sometimes great pain. We will get things wrong. We will fight with him, if you wish. We will fight with ourselves. These are things we don't want to talk about at Christmas. And yet I think we obviously should. So when we think of Christmas and we see the lights, we should recognize that a great light has dawned. And when people speak of the miracles, the miracle on 34th Street, you know, we should think of the miracle of the birth of Jesus. And we should recognize the time may come, and it does in every life, in which a sword will pierce our hearts. The coming of the good news is within the context of bad news. You can't have good news if there isn't bad news. Francis Schaeffer used to say that if he was able to speak to someone on a train, he knew that they had an hour to converse, that he would spend 45 minutes talking about the bad news and the last 15 minutes on the good news. Because the good news, I think, only becomes good news when we see the reality of the darkness that we live in. We see the reality of how we want to put things aside when we see the reality of our need of a Savior. Many people don't want to be saved because they don't think they need to be saved. And yet they want to celebrate Christmas. And as God's people, I think we should be reminded the reality of what Christmas means as Jesus comes into the world. Let's pray together. Father, we live, I think, in confusing times. When we sing joy to the world and others sing have a jolly Christmas, speaking about the same holiday, but obviously from very different vantage points. And the story has become so familiar to us that we lose a sense of that joy. We forget the darkness, the need of a savior, the miracle required to bring it about, and the pain, the sword piercing our hearts. As we celebrate the birth of your son, as we spend time with family and friends, 
May we be gently reminded by your spirit of these truths. And may our hearts be filled with even greater joy at the realization of what the coming of Jesus means. Thank you for bringing us together this day. For the time that we've been able to spend together, the time we will continue to spend together as we celebrate the birth of your son. And we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.